Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur First podcast, where we explore the stories and thought processes of some of the world's most ambitious entrepreneurs. My name is Matt Clifford. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First, and I'll be your host for this episode. At TF, we believe the world is missing out on some of its best founders. We invest in the entrepreneurs of the future before they have a company, provide the best platform globally for finding an exceptional co-founder. We're always excited to discover an individual's raw ambition to build a globally important company. Our job is to help them transform that ambition into reality. Along the way, we have countless conversations where our founders open up about their experiences in startups and talk to us about what it's really like. We wanted to give you a taste of that through this podcast series. For our first episode, I spoke to two EF founders building companies in fintech. Neil Popat, the founder and CEO of Donut, and Ratan Shah, the co-founder and CEO of Spenny. Both of their companies are looking to serve a new generation of consumers and help them save and invest in new ways. We speak in this episode about the state of fintech today and how each of these founders' personal entrepreneurial journeys shaped their company's visions. We also exchange tips on how to overcome the challenges of getting started in fintech. Both our guests have a wealth of experience in the world of investment and banking. Neil worked at institutions like Rothschild, American Capital and Graphite Capital, while Ratan got his start at JPMorgan Chase. But they both wanted to start their own technology companies, so they both joined Entrepreneur First. I asked Neil to give us an insight into what Donut is all about. Donut is the easiest and most trusted way to access DeFi yield products. DeFi is a new term in finance. And really what we've seen over the last couple of years is these open protocols. A lot of it's based on lending. Our job is really to provide people access to that type of uh, product. It's probably the single biggest step change I've seen in financial services where you have open protocols and these services effectively repeat what an investment bank would do. So like a process like lending and borrowing, it can be automated via a smart contract and it can give people access to these new products. I sometimes use the analogy that DeFi protocols are oil rigs and they've found great places to um, you know, find oil. Someone needs to build the petrol station so that someone can come and fill up. And no pun in that analogy, given my parents' background, but that's re- that's really like. I was going to say, think. I didn't think you managed to find a way to bring it back to petrol stations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't intentionally. Actually, one of our marketing guys came up with that analogy, and I was like, actually, this sounds like uh, it, it could be interesting. But yeah, uh, we've built a, a consumer-led access layer to, to this ecosystem, and yeah, we started in in Berlin, but we we exclusively target the US market. Uh, I'm sure we'll get onto that um, in a second, but that's a, a brief intro. Spenny also focuses on new fintech solutions to encourage saving and investment. I asked Rutin how his firm attracts a new generation of consumers. So with Spenny, we are attempting to build the easiest and the fastest way to start investing, especially for Indian millennials who have not yet started investing, which is, by the way, 97% of the population. And so the idea is that every time you do any sort of digital transaction, we round it up to the nearest 10 rupees and we keep investing for you automatically into pre-made diversified portfolios. For us, I think the goal was pretty simple. When we started, only 2.9% of the Indian population had ever invested in their life. This is as opposed to 55% of the people in US, about 40% in China, even the Asian average is more than 35%. And as opposed to that, in India, it's just 2.9%. And it's not because there's a lack of money. 
it's because there are not enough easy ways to do this. People don't have enough knowledge or enough time to sit down and get on this investing train. And so we want to be able to move that number from 2.9 to 10 or 15%. It's not surprising that both Ratin and Neil began on traditional career paths before jumping into entrepreneurship. Careers are changing rapidly, and we see more and more people take this leap every day. One important commonality as well across their products is that they each identified an artificial bottleneck that was holding back consumer demand. And they've both designed products that aim to remove that blocker and allow consumer behavior to explode. In this podcast, I'm also keen to understand the underlying motives behind what makes individuals dive into entrepreneurship and reach out to Entrepreneur First for guidance. For Neil, becoming an entrepreneur was something he says was in his blood. I came from an entrepreneurial background, but part of it was actually my parents wanted me not to do that. So um, I think there's another layer that, that actually makes it harder for people to make that jump. But then let's talk about the jump, because that's what the question was aimed at and how I heard about Berlin. Now, I had a number of friends that went on the program in, in London. And in the early days, Magic Pony had created this huge exit. So there's a lot of um, positive press in the London ecosystem for that. And that basically brought my eye to EF. And I actually missed the cutoff for applying to London. As someone that was brought up in London, I probably should have gone to the London program. And, and then I saw actually Berlin spark up. And I think there's three or four key reasons why Berlin is a great ecosystem for founding a company. One, generally a great inflow of tech talent. So you have the Eastern European engineering talent, you have French engineers, they all flock to Berlin and that's great. You then have this low cost ecosystem in, in Berlin, which I think is like an enabler for most, for most startup ecosystems. And then this anti-establishment culture, which kind of compels this whole potion together. And to me, I was like, this is a great ecosystem. I always think building a startup is like building a, a Formula One car. You can either try and do it in your garage or you can try and go to the factory at to, to work out whether you can do it or not. And I was like, look, let's try out the factory at Ford to see if I've got a higher chance of doing this. And I thought that those kind of, sometimes the stars align. And, and for me, the stars aligned and, and they said that this ecosystem is great. This is a great first investor backer sponsor. Now the rest is, have we got the vision and idea to really tackle a space? And that's my journey to EF. Ratin had his eyes set on business school before he joined EF. He tells me that becoming an entrepreneur was always his true calling, though. For some reason, I decided to apply for a business school. And I had applied to a few schools. I got invites from INSEAD in Europe and like Harvard. But I really just wanted to take some time off. And so I just took seven, eight months off. And I was taking each month to do some kind of an activity. I performed stand-up comedy across India for a month. And I just did music. Oh, wow. I just uh, did travel <laughs> blogging for a month. In the middle of all this, I realized that, hey, you know what? I actually, I know my love for entrepreneurship. I know my, the passion that I have while building a company. And so I really wanted to get back into startups. That's around the time when a friend of mine who was in EF Singapore at the time, Sahil, he told me about EF. And that was the first time I heard the concept. And I was like, wait a minute. Like for the first three months, are they going to pay you for this thing? While you build your own company? That's insane. That's insane. And I was like, this is it. This I have to get into EF. Now, mind you, my my flight for INSEAD was going to depart in three days. And I had just very little time to make this decision. So I applied to EF Bangalore because I was already positioned in India. I got into the interview stage. 
and I had my final interview and I got told on the interview that I am not yet ready for entrepreneurship. It was suggested to me that I should rather go for a business school or a job right now, prepare myself for some time and then get into entrepreneurship. And it was a little sort of heartbreaking, but I wanted to get into EF. And so immediately while, while coming out of that room, I actually emailed every single EF center across the world, including Singapore and London and Berlin and Paris, all the, all the centers that existed at that time. And I, I just wrote a mail explaining the situation that I, I have three days to make a decision. Can you please take me into your immediate cohort, whichever one it is. And thank my lucky stars that somebody from Singapore, Frankie specifically, just got back to me saying that, hey, this is interesting. Let's get on a call. I got on a call with Frankie. The call went really well. And he said, hey, this is interesting. Why don't you apply for the next cohort, which starts six months from now? And I said, no. I need to be on this cohort, which starts in less than 10 days. I need to be on this cohort or else I have to go to a business school because I'm not going to sit around for the next six months. And I explained in the situation and he's, but our deadlines for this have already passed one month ago. We have already had all the, like the cohort is filled. And I was like, okay, can you do anything? Is there anything that I can do to make this happen? And he said, give me a day. And rightfully, he, like within a day, he got back to me saying that, hey, there's one vacancy. Do you want to interview for it? And I got, I jumped on the interview immediately just, and it fortunately it went well. And then within 10 days, instead of taking a flight out to Paris, I was taking a flight to Singapore and just fortunes just turned 180 degree, literally and figuratively. Fintech is booming and has attracted high levels of investment in recent years all over the world. So if you're starting a company from scratch, how do you know which country or region is the right base for you? Neil grew up in London, but started his company in Germany. He thinks that you first need to decide what problem you're solving before you can know which market is best to cater to to begin with. A lot of the DeFi yield products which are difficult to access are all US dollar stablecoin based. So that's where the innovation happened first. It's where the innovation was breaking. And for us, Do you want to very quickly explain what a US dollar stablecoin is? I know uh, for probably... A lot of people it will be familiar, but but I'm guessing that we, we probably have some generalist listeners as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So a, a stable coin is one-to-one pegged against a, a dollar, um, and the, the d- digital dollar equivalent is a stable coin. And, and how our product works is we convert your US dollars to a stable coin, so it's effectively the equivalent, and we lend that out on the back end. And that's really how our product works. Now, that ecosystem of dollar stablecoin innovation, be it at the lending and borrowing, be it at different use cases, was happening first in the US market. The the European market and the UK market was slower to adopt. There still wasn't a European stablecoin or or, or UK stablecoin that's reached scale. So we wanted to be at the forefront of the innovation, which is really where our business started. A lot of my friends used to come and ask me, Neil, I have $20,000, where should I put it in crypto? And that's really what our business started with. And they wanted to access this new ecosystem. They didn't really know where to start. And it was crypto in 2018 when we started, but DeFi wasn't really a word. And when DeFi came along, people were like, oh, this is like really interesting because I can double digit yield to 10, 20% of my money in a different way. So for us, the innovation cut in the US, the customer problem and the, the demand for the service was bigger in that market. And the, the one thing that is unique about decentralized finance in in its all is actually that the architecture is scalable globally so if you can crack the the biggest market with the innovation happening and then you take it globally i think that was our our thesis for going to that market 
For Ratan, whose company serves the Indian market, choosing his target market was based on how Spenny could best attract millennial investors. In fact, we started with not India being as the focus, but like more of a general Asia focus at that time. But we realized that fintech is a problem that you solve along with regulations. It comes with its own challenges. Every country is very differently wired. And then you have the second point of user behavior, or consumer sort of psychology. And the psychology in India right now with respect to investing is probably analogous to what crypto is today, which means investing in 2015 in India was is equivalent to crypto in 2021 in the world. And in that, what I mean is that people have started to be aware about the fact that there exist investment options and you should invest. They don't know, they don't know the right tools. They don't know how to do it. They don't have the right knowledge right now. And if somebody can solve for this massive problem, for this massive uh, population, they can become a great solution for, for a lot of people. So just to give you an interesting fact, every other person in India, one in every two people in India are below the age of 25 today. They are about to start earning. They have started earning, which means we have a massive boom in terms of the people who have started earning. And those are the kind of people who will need investment and wealth tech solutions. And there don't exist any which are millennial friendly. All pre-existing solutions right now, they're boring, they're complicated, they use way too many jargons, and it's definitely not the way to attract millennials. And since nobody's doing that, I think we decided to stick to that. And we, both my co-founder and I, we have been growing up in India since so many years, and we understand the psychology more than anybody else. And we, have, we belong to this generation. Essentially, you're building a product for ourselves, and therefore it becomes a bit easier. Global investment in fintech has grown extensively over the past few years. And as capital flows have increased, so has regulatory oversight. I asked Neil and Ratan how they deal with regulatory risk in their businesses. I feel like people always look at regulations in a negative sense. It may not be so always. Oftentimes, I think part of it is necessary. It also, if, if you have certain regulations which actually protect or safeguard the user's interest, it not only will it gain help in gaining more trust for the users, but it'll also drive more engagement because they know that at the back of the mind, they are they know that, hey, it's going to be safe because the government's also watching. So it's not as if somebody like a spenny or a donut is suddenly just going to run away with every all of their savings and investments. So, of course, I think that's definitely a positive. That being said, I think the important part here is that you don't over-regulate such that then there is no innovation. Because that's then the other side of the coin is that you overregulate and now you have you leave no room for any sort of a regulation thing. I think one solution to this, especially the Indian government has started doing, I'm not sure how well it will do ahead. But what they've done is that they have now started getting a few fintech founders on their board in terms of while making the policy for these regulations of the products, especially the ones who have been in the field for over 10 years and they understand the user's side, they understand the risks that these companies have and as opposed to that what these regulations can bring on board and so this bridge between sort of startups and the government i think that would be key to the next five or ten years because again there will be a huge amount of new technology and new with DeFi and all that coming in you will need more and more regulations but at the same time we need to make sure that it's not tilting to a level where it's super high and there's no innovation for neil the key to managing regulatory risk is being transparent about your product i think that for me, one of the key things is the, the responsibility of these products is to be uber transparent on what the risks are, if there are risks. And I think that's something that 
if you look at digital finance products from call it the 2007 to 2012 era, Robinhood could have been more open from day one about how they did their business model and had a very clear communication of how their product worked. And they opted to be a little bit more opaque from the get-go of, of how they provided zero commission fees. So I think that there's two things. The tr trust and transparency just go hand in hand. If you're transparent about how the product works, I think people will trust it more. Regulators are very simple, right? They, they want to just protect consumers' assets to make sure you're not doing anything um, you shouldn't be doing. They actually want to enable innovation, but they do want to enable safe innovation. So knowing how to use regulators and use regulation to your advantage is actually like a skill in itself. So I think that if you're a digital finance product and you don't have a sound regulatory strategy, I think that that's obviously going to cost you. And why Coinbase did really well, their product is UX and regulation at the end of the day, great UX, and then a very sound regulatory strategy, and they, they've executed well. And the key to their success is, is having that um, strong pillar around regulation. I think the, the way I look at it is, in 10 years time, what do we think that this looks like? And if you think that this ecosystem grows the way it is growing, it's unconceivable to think that a regulator will not have some eye or some level of understanding of how these products work. The SEC in the US, would you believe, recruit blockchain developers? They know what the innovation is. They're completely aware of how this stuff works. You can see job postings for teams looking at this. So I think that, I think that you have to look at this as this is going to be a regulated space to some extent. And you have to build regulatory first, especially in a space like ours, which is new fringe coming to the masses probably next after crypto. I think that, yeah, the regulators are not stupid. And I think that they know about these products. Yeah, it's only a matter of time before they have sound regulatory um, processes to protect consumers. Yeah, I think that, that makes a ton of sense. It's one of those things where the, the, the challenge is that some of some of the attraction to things like crypto is the sense of people have got rich quick and how can I get rich quick? And obviously that's a, probably a dangerous consumer. That is not a desire that can be consistently fulfilled at scale. But as you say, I think the, the bit that is exciting, at least from where I sit, is that the, the genie is now at the bottle now. There's no way to put it back. I think that probably applies to what each of you are doing, that it's clearly something that consumers want and it's more about how entrepreneurs can constructively work with regulators rather than the risk that one day everything just gets shut down. I think most problems, I think, are something that you can fight. One of the things which I definitely see as a potential risk in sort of our field, apart from regulations, is growth. And what I mean by that is this is a typical kind of an industry where growing fast is extremely important because the faster you grow, the more... AUM you command or the more users you have, you have more leverage to then start offering other sort of other services, which, which can only work at scale, especially in the uh, investing industry. There are, you right now, you're finding the incumbents, not just on the fact that they are bigger, but because they are bigger, they, they have a whole gamut of other products that they can offer, which you can't because you are smaller and by default or by design, those products don't work. So if, say, for example, in our case, in mutual funds, for example, you can't really have a functioning mutual fund at just like 5,000 users. You need to have at least 200,000, 300,000 users for, the, for it to be functional if you want to have sort of your own fund per se. And that's the biggest challenge, which is that we need to get to a level where we, we start 
dictating the terms in terms of what can be useful uh, for the users as opposed to being reliant on third-party organizations. Being reliant on organizations means you're, you're reliant on the APIs of the banks on, or on the mutual funds or on the payment gateways, etc. Because there are so many parties involved in between. And with every more one more reliance on every other organization, you're dependent on everything working well for your product to be flawless. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that we need to take start taking control over time. Fintech is a huge opportunity for incumbent financial institutions too. But generally, when you look around the world, it does seem that it's startups that are leading the way on financial innovation. Ask Neil and Ratan why they think this is. I think the, the best parallel that I can think of is if you look at the banking market. So neobanks came and there's a ton of neobanks and now it's like normal to have a neobank. But why has it taken so long for the traditional banks to spin up digital banking products and attract a different subset of people. And I think that the macro trend we're seeing is that people are going from kind of old institutions to these individual digital finance products, or actually we're seeing one step further, I would argue now, of people going to brands and identities of individuals. And that's playing out in consumer-led product. And that's no different to investing, whereas before, if I worked at Rothschild, great you know, institution, you'd go there and they'd manage your money and you'd have a certain number of products which were only available to you know, the 0.005% of, of the elite. Now there's a new way of saying, okay, well, actually anyone with a mobile phone can access these products. And actually that's the step change that we're seeing where people say, okay, I don't have to go to a relationship advisor at Rothschild to manage my money. I can actually trust digital finance products or one step further, which Donut works in is actually an open protocol that's not really run by anyone or owned by anyone, but it's run by a, a group of developers. Um, so that's what we've seen in the market. I think for me, it is uh, very clear the difference between the incumbents and the and why they are not able to capture this, even though when they see this massive opportunity, and that relies on three um, pillars. Um, the first is humor, the second is relatability, and the third is trust. Now, why do I say humor is because, especially I can speak about the Indian context specifically, is that everyone takes themselves too seriously, to be honest. The banks, the financial institutions, which is great. Yes, you should be taken seriously. But hey, uh, remember that your target, you're trying to attract those young investors to you. And by being super serious and using all those jargons, it's not going to help. You need to have a bit of humor. And I don't mean it literally, but what I mean is that you need to lighten the brand a bit you need to attract the users and you know try to get them on board with you on the same page as you and not alienate yourself you don't give out this high-handedness you need to be able to get down to that level and understand so that is the first part the second is relatability i think the biggest thing that the that these the incumbents don't do is and what they should be doing is essentially just throw i need to get a feeling that hey you have an arm around me and and you you're saying and you're telling me that, hey, I understand your finance problems. We've got it. Here's how we're going to do it. And it's crazy how no company seems to be doing that. It's quite the opposite. And if you look at the startups, that's exactly where they are building out their sort of uh, advantage over these incumbent companies. It's not the tech, especially in India, because the tech, yes, those guys can probably hire 100 developers and then make, make the same tech. That's fine. But this feeling of having an arm around the customer and then telling them, Hey, I understand your problems more than anybody else. And I know how we can tackle this together. So that's the relatability aspect. And the third is the trust thing in that conversations with these big incumbents 
feel like you're talking to a wall. It doesn't induce any trust. You don't have any personalization. And because you don't have that, it seems, hey, my problem was just a ticket number on their customer support channel. So developing the trust, that's the third part of this. And these three are the main reasons I feel why the startups are taking a big leap ahead in this opportunity. One of my favorite things about working at Entrepreneur First is hearing founders talk about their vision for their companies. For Rotten, his vision started off with monkeys. When we started the product, this was not our idea. And I remember we were in the second floor of the EF Singapore building. We put out monkey posters everywhere, which said, investing so easy, monkeys can do better than you. And there was a very specific reason for this. The reason was that there was a research conducted in the US a few years ago, where in, in one room they had blindfolded monkeys and in the other room they had financial analysts and they had a chart full of stocks in front of them. The monkeys were given darts the, and they threw the darts on the board and they selected those finance portfolios using those darts. When versus the other room, you had the financial analysts. They compared the stock charts, the sort of the baskets for 30 years and for 28 of those years, monkeys defeated the analysts. Our hypothesis was that, hey, listen, what if we make investing fun? Do you think there'll be more people who would invest? And with that, we put out monkey posters all across the EF office. I remember inside the elevators, on the cafe table, etc. Um, Frankie and Saps were very understandably mad at us for, hey, sticking everywhere. <laughs> but we did get the entirety of the EF building out there. And we had put up a huge spin wheel on the second floor with the stock names. And we said, you give us $5, you spin the wheel, whatever stock you get, you win. Either you get a $1 penny stock or you get a $100 stock. That's on you. Um, and we got such a crazy response. We ran out of stocks in probably the first 15 minutes. And that was our first hypothesis and potentially a link to our larger vision. And our larger vision, which was that, hey, listen, I think investing is far too complicated for no reason. The larger vision is that if we can make investing very simple to a level where it feels as though you are enjoying it and you make that a psychologically natural activity for you as a consumer, especially for people who are between the ages of 22 and 38, the young generation. So that's the vision. So the vision is to move that needle from 3% of India that just invests 15% by actually making it so simple and fun that you really want to do it. So I think for me, the, the intrinsic thing of I worked at Rothschild, which was this great financial institution, which had very high barriers to, to people coming to put their money with, for example, Rothschild. For me, the one thing that our ecosystem does is it allows to create a more inclusive financial world. And that is something that has got a unique property to. Anyone can access these open protocols. And we really want to take that to a billion people globally. And that's really our vision to create a more inclusive financial world with a billion people via DeFi. Finally, I also asked Ratan and Neil, what kinds of startups they would invest in besides fintech? I feel like the need of the R is sustainability in terms of reducing our carbon footprint. You can, you can divide this into two parts. One is that we make sure that the current planet that we are surviving on stays on for long enough. And then the second thing is that if we try and make um, life multiplanetary, in which case you don't need to worry too much about the current planet. So it's only these two things for us to survive for a longer period of time. And so anyone working on either one of these, I think that's probably the most important problem to solve and everything else can solve them for themselves. 
So, so it's funny you said interplanetary. So I, I was going to say, how, how are people going to transact financial services in, in space? My end vision is to work out in space at some point. And, and I think it would be a, a great area to, to focus on, on how monetary value flows across different planets. I love ideas of the kind that both Neil and Ratin are working on. They have the opportunity to radically improve financial inclusion and transform the ways that consumers think about money. I'm excited about their visions, but also about the thoughtful ways that they're building their teams and their companies. I feel very lucky to be an investor in each of them. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Entrepreneur First podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Neil and Ratin's journeys and learned a little bit more about what's happening in fintech. I'll be your host again for episode two, when we meet Raphael and Rohit, two EF founders breaking new ground in the commercial space industry. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about Entrepreneur First, visit joinef.com. Thanks for listening. Catch us in the next episode, where we'll be hearing more stories about entrepreneurial adventures. See you next time.